Welcome again to the April edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. Mike. Zach. We've got some stuff to talk about. It's been a little over a month. We now have in the rearview mirror the 2018-2019 winner. That's a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. So I think we should do a post-mortem on on this winner and... As you know, as as we all know, we're sort of heading into the the heat season, and not too far in the future, we have the glorious monsoon to look forward to. Monsoon countdown begins. Does it begin now? now? Let's all do right. it. Start it right now. Why don't we step back and do the the big picture first? What do you think is the the winter narrative? The winter winter or winter. The winter narrative? The winter. The winter narrative. You could do the winter narrative, winter narrative too. If I don't know different. if this is going to be a winter narrative. <laughs> um, so, okay, the winter narrative. El Nino gets all the credit. I say boo on that. No. Why, uh, why do you is that the is that the sort of media narrative out there? It's been interesting. I've been out talking to folks and it's kind of caught into people's imagination that, man, wasn't this a good El Nino winter? And I'm like, ah, oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a great winter. It was an El Nino. Barely. People call it yeah. Noah calls it a puny. They, quote they called it, it puny. A puny. I mean, it's not even a technical term. It barely, I don't think. It barely registered. I, right. I, I, if you want to parse the numbers, I guess it was just slightly over that critical threshold. Right. But nonetheless, it gets into the El Nino box, if you will. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think in the statistics, it's going to, it will be kind of drifting towards the middle. So it won't, gonna, it's not going to stick out in the ends, the outliers. But yeah, you're right. It's still going to go in the wind column for El Nino in part. But I think that that narrative is, it's too simple. It's just like, you know, good solid play from your team and then somebody slam dunks and that's all they remember at the end. So I think the mess of weather all through the winter without a lot of coherent forcing is really the narrative. I think MGO was solid MVP for most of the winter, but even in the last two months, El Nino kind of showed up, played a little bit, put a little effort into it. MJO has actually waned now and has not really been the mechanism forcing things. I think we've got a little bit of residual El Nino-ish kind of circulation pattern right now, but then just the mess of weather has just continued across the continental U.S. How many MJOs were there then? I don't know. Were Six? Twelve? <laughs> 14? I'm not sure. Well, when you, so coherent. You're talking about coherent well, waves when you say that it, passing When you through. say that it was an MVP, I guess in sort of the narrative for me is let's just include October in the – Oh, man. Yeah, okay. Okay. So let's, ju- let's look at the special? last you know, six months. Mm-hmm. Really what stands out to me is the very wet across the West October. Yeah. And then the really wet this, uh, February. I think that's right. I think that's a good breakdown. So October – uh, multiple recurver, tropical storms, hurricanes, decaying hurricanes moving through the southwest. It's kind of hard to call that the winter. I, I think it is too. It didn't feel very – it was actually cool uh, out. I mean it was – I think the the month for a, as a whole I really think it argues for having like three – four distinct seasons. You have the monsoon Most up. places do have four seasons. Yeah. That's not a, that's not a <laughs> okay. thing. I mean like not, a, not an unusual well, thing. Well, we won't call it, you know, summer, winter, right. autumn – Autumn, and, yeah. And spring, we'll call it monsoon, hurricane. <laughs> okay. Monsoon, hurricane. Or, 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 or remnant hurricane. Okay. Which I think would be October. Yeah. Maybe a little bit of November. Nah. Yeah. I Probably not. Just October. Yeah. Then winter. And winter, so we'll do November through March. Okay. Or we could even we could even throw in April there. Okay. 
Now nah. you're agreeing with me. Ah, I I'm really pushing back. I was just going to agree with everything you said. Now I just I feel like I can't. Oh, you, what 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 do you disagree? with? No, I think it's good. So and, and I was thinking, and, okay, you're talking about in general. And then just, the heat season. The heat season. Yeah, I like that. May, May and June. May and June. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, right. I, I'm 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 taking us on a tangent. Now go no, back. No, it's good. You're trying to break down. You're trying to break break down the year so we can talk about it. Coherently. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's so, what you were trying to do. Right? That's what I was trying to do. <laughs> okay. I don't think it was working. <laughs> okay. October is hurricane season. Is that what you called it? Remnant. Remnant. Tropical. Remnant storm low season. season. Here. Remnant tropical storm season. Yeah. Yeah. So this year, a couple, a couple recurvers, uh, lots of subtropical moisture, and the interaction with some low pressure systems coming in, which you'd normally see in October transition. But we had the moisture, so we were able to do some gangbuster rain events all the way through the month. It was a really busy month. Um, I think, you know, weren't there something like 10, 10 coherent rain events uh, throughout the month close all to, stacking up on each other? In Tucson, close to three inches of rain. Yeah, crazy. Very unusual on the record. Often we'll blank Octobers. That's not Let that me just hard to do. Put that in perspective, though. For, for Tucson, when you look at the total from October through the end of May, the, the total is five inches. So just three alone in October yeah. is quite impressive. Yeah. Pushing up the, the, I mean, the water year total is going to be dominated if we, once we get to the end of September, if the monsoon is just even where near normal, it's going to be dominated by that early October stuff from October of, of 2018. Yeah. We, we blanked October. So October of 2018, last October, no rain at all. So it was just such a stark contrast to what we and saw And that's a high year. variability month. It's a huge, huge high variability because it's all dependent upon whether or not, like, yeah, you, there's activity in the East Pacific and whether or not they actually recurve into into our area. I think largely the big precip events in the October historical record are tropical related, and it's just a little tougher for the the winter time activity to get this far south in there. And if they can, they can interact with some of that lingering monsoon moisture. But it it is um, it's typically a waning month for us for sure coming out of the monsoon season. Yeah, if you look since 2010, we've had two Octobers, 2014 and 2018, with no precip here in Tucson. 2013 was a trace. 2012 was 0.06. 2017 was 0.1. So typically, you get a little bit of dribble of precipitation. 2016, though, 2.25 inches. That was on the, the tail of the the Uber El Nino, Godzilla El Nino, 2015, 2016, still having an active East Pacific hurricane season in that, that fall season. Boy, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at Phoenix. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I forgot. I, yeah. Phoenix was just absolutely drenched. Um, we had that did, large scale flooding event. With, yeah. Um, I believe it was Sergio or Rosa. I can't remember which That's one right. was, which went through and then flooded out the whole Boy, I seem to have blacked out. A, Were you October. even here? <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> I mean, they received five inches of, uh, more than five inches of rain. That's yeah. more than their, in the month of October, they receive more rain than historically what occurs between October and May. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and so you look at our, the cumulative curves are just, they're kind of ridiculous with October in it. They usually work pretty well because October is a pretty tame month. So the accumulations occurring after that really contribute to the cool season totals. But How widespread was that? Do you recall? It was big. It was it was very widespread. It was, was it just the Southwest or was it more in the interior? It, did it waft up into the interior West? It tracked through Arizona from like Tahan Autumn in the, the southern part of the state up through the middle part of the state and caused some flooding up in Navajo. And then I believe it clipped Utah and went up into Colorado. But mm. 
it was ground zero. I mean, if you remember, this is when like the weather channel was driving around in trucks looking for flooding uh, in October. <laughs> I mean, there was no severe weather going on. Storm chasing turned yeah. into wash chasing in Arizona, which is a sad state of affairs for, <laughs> for storm chasing for sure. So we could talk about October all year. Yeah, no. And I think we should because it was probably <laughs> No, I was going to say, let's, let's move on because we've, yeah. we've covered that terrain. Okay, November was boring. It dried out. It warmed up. It, was, it wasn't off the charts warm like it was last fall in 2018, but it was enough to, to make us, I think, all a little bit itchy that we were going to do. <laughs> we were going to do last winter over again. And so it took all the way until the middle of December for the storm track to actually shift down into Arizona again. And it really wasn't until the last week of December that we started to get busy. Well, both Tucson and Phoenix did not have any rain in, in November. No. I, well, I, I think technically the last day of the month, it mm. was a buzzer beater. Yep. It was November 30th. You're right. You're right. It got logged into the books. And You're I think right. Tucson ended up having seven hundredths of an inch in November, but it was literally at the last day of the month. The first two weeks of December were warm again, kind of bumped around, and it and it, the pattern totally shifted about the from the fifteenth on, and it was that last week. And then we, man, oh man, it's just been, you know, we haven't had to wait around long for something other well, there interesting. Was, there to was happen. a pretty prolonged drying out in in the latter half of January. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I was, I, I think just having the, you know, the, the transition from the beginning of December into the end of December and then get a snow event and then get another rain event, it kind of made me forget that we had a couple of stretches. The activity picked up again in February, mm-hmm. again, with both a low elevation snow event and some pretty warm kind of atmospheric rivery precip events for Tucson that it just kept going. I mean, that was, it just... You know, this year we can kind of look back through it from monsoon of 2018 up to present, and we've had just about every kind of weather event that Tucson can get, anyways. And I think more broadly across the Southwest, especially in the Arizona side. Did we have an atmospheric river? We did. We, we did had one that like sort of thread the needle, right? Yeah, exactly. Thread well, the needle. It was February. February. Um, that's and it, right. It, real high snow levels, um, lots of rain, and it was. It was interacting with all that snowpack that we had built up through the through the season two, and so we put down some really big flows in um, some of the the rivers in Arizona. So February ended up for Arizona becoming the it was the fifth wettest in 125 years. It's pretty good. We've had a lot of. I mean, February is a wet month for Tucson or for Arizona, anyways. To get up in the books that high is is saying something. And so New Mexico, though, I think it, we have to kind of reiterate too being more broad about Southwest with, with Clemus is that New Mexico hasn't had as much fun, I think, as we have. If you just look at February, the trajectory of the storms were sort of going south, west to northeast. Yeah. And I mean, so they were, they, they were they, clipping they us. Of, yeah. They were on the dry side of a lot of these, these storms. And it's... It, it wasn't that uh, in February, it wasn't that New Mexico was completely dry. Right. I mean, it, it's... In fact, actually, the, the Four Corners region... Yeah, and this and that's part of the trajectory of the storms. Yeah, in, in New Mexico, the Four Corners region did experience some some rain. It was just right. the uh, southeast, the far eastern has been yeah. kind of left out of the action. And we can have jet stream patterns too, where real strong subtropical jets in some El Nino events, where all the activity is south of us, and so we're on the dry northern side of that activity in Arizona, and then you can get this real hard cut 
where New Mexico is, goes very wet and Arizona goes very dry. And it's it's been the opposite with having that activity more focused over Arizona. It's left New Mexico on the dry side. The other thing about February was that it was wet across the West. Aside from New Mexico, which was just, if you looked at the statewide average, it was, it just came in at a, at a round average. Everywhere else was above average and much above average. Like I said, uh, Arizona as a statewide average was fifth wettest. California was fourth wettest in its record. Nevada was the fifth wettest. Utah was the 10th wettest. Colorado was the 15th wet. Everywhere except for New Mexico and Washington State in the West was. So it was it was a pretty banner year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, February was. February, right. Actually, if you look at all of the US, it was the 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 wettest or the second wettest in 125 years for the entire second wettest 125 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the drought monitor is really telling that story. I mean, broad improvements. There is no extreme drought in the continental US right now. February was a, a really good year, particularly for those who, who were uh, ski enthusiasts. I know we talked about that the snowpack was off the charts in a, right. in, a, in a lot of areas, particularly California, which saw just a whole bunch of those atmospheric rivers that just like pounded the the Sierras with a lot of snow, which is good for, for, for the water situation. But let's move along to, to March. So March here in Tucson was basically a one event wonder. It's a month that tends not to receive that much rain to begin with. I think the average is about three quarters of an inch. And that one event produced about six tenths at, at, at the airport. I don't know, Mike, in, in, any thoughts on, uh, on March? It's kind of kind of what you would expect, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the last couple of years, uh, you know, again, thinking about Tucson, just because I happen to have that that data handy, we have often been below that. And so I think to, you know, to even come close to that this year was, was I, I was quite pleased with that. I mean, we've, we've really, we've seen the sort of kind of retreat of some of that spring precipitation ending a little bit earlier every year. And so for it to extend even into the middle part of March, I was quite pleased with. And we've even seen some precip events extending into April now. But the the March event, yeah, was a pretty good solid west-wide event, kind of in coming in on the 11th of March and then putting down some good widespread precipitation across both Arizona and New Mexico over the, the 12th and the 13th. Some pretty heavy rain, you know, uh, inch to two inches in some of the higher elevation locations. So it was also an active month for the interior West. Yeah. Again, Nevada, Utah, and Colorado were all within top ten of their 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 wettest months, and 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 that's important for snowpack and stream flow, which we'll which we'll talk about in a minute, because a substantial amount of uh, of snow can fall in, in March in those in the high country. Right. Right. The other thing that has been remarkable for me was just how cool it seemed, how cold it seemed, and we talked about. A little bit about this on the last pod, but while it was colder than average, it was much colder than it had been over the last like six, seven years. Yeah, it sort of made me think about. Um, I'm getting kind of soft, I guess. <laughs> well, I think it's the it's the recency bias of you know all of our sort of climate minds is that we, we maybe bring a year with us when we're thinking about our expectations for an, any given month, and so I think having last year happen and then this year in succession you know thinking about last fall and last winter being so dry and so warm record followed by this 
you're being so much cooler and so much wetter. I think that that's what's what's so been so striking about it with me. And we've had we had periods throughout this whole since October where like October being so wet was cooler than we normally experience in. And I think statistically, if we look at the climatology, it was I can't remember if it was a, it's probably slightly below average. It probably wasn't the coldest ever or anything mm-hmm. like that. November it was, was slightly warm, below average. Was slightly below yeah. average, yeah, which would make sense with the precip mm-hmm. in that particular month. November, I think, was slightly above average. And then December was a mixed bag because the preset came late. January, like you said, it dried out and warmed up in the later part of the month. Mm-hmm. So you get a wash. February, I'm not sure. What I was think, the, the temps for February? Do I think remember? they were b- below average. Below average? Yeah. We had the low elevation snow event. and We had just about on average the over the... The, over the full winter, the the same amount of freezing days as, yeah. as average, which right. Right. which it's average, but it's been more than they have been in the past. Exactly. Yeah. So we, so uh, that average ten years or so. Yeah. So back to forty eight. You can see the trend certain starts to play with with this whole perceptional issue here. Is that at the end of the trend where we're seeing most of the warming in the last couple of years? It's a it's a word. Look it up. Yeah. <laughs> It's hyphen. We'll, we'll get a, a word, hyphen in it. We'll get a There's word hyphen. check on that. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> we get a fact check or two. <laughs> then we're then we're done. The podcast is over. Just to your point, I was just sort of I was trying to help you out here. I was trying to help your your point out is that yeah we're we're coming in at I think the the type of winter that was more frequent earlier in the record. We're now seeing it, and it just stands out because it's been so warm and dry in the last couple of years with the trend. So again, zooming out, we, 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 I mentioned this a minute ago, but zooming out and thinking about the U.S. as a whole, I mean, it is striking that this is, and I, I, I saw some data that said it was the wettest, and I've seen other data or reports that said it's the second wettest. I'm looking at one here from NOAA that, that calls it the, the second wettest on record. So For February. That is for February. But yeah. when I look at this from October through March, this is the second wettest. Okay. Yep. As a U.S. average. For the continental U.S., right? For the continental U.S. That is pretty impressive. Yeah. Can we wave our hand at what, caused what might it? be driving this? Yeah. I The thoughts that I was sort of tossing in my head this morning was related to the Arctic. We had a loose lid on the Arctic, so we had more more cold outbreaks, which might have pushed down the the storm track, which might have allowed for more. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of making I'm sort of making stuff <laughs> yeah, up. It's now. good. I like it. I like where you're going. I I mean, it was also an El Nino, so we had some tropical. I know, and I so I went back and I, I read some of the the synoptic summaries that National Climatic Data Center wrote up. I in particular read the March one. They do this really cool thing where they'll 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 take the the month. So they just wrote up the March one. So they go back and they actually look at the whole evolution of all the synoptic patterns, all the circulation patterns and the indices. And then they try to match them up to look at what the, they try to do attribution basically. Different things at different Mm -hmm. months. Yeah. And so I just looked at March um, because that was the one that was available. Go back and look at some of the other ones. We could go back and look at the the February in particular. So I think if we go back to, so March one in that particular write-up, they didn't find any one single strong driver. They saw a mix of kind of weather scale events. And so then they'll, the, you know, the attribution MJO, not really. And so not really, mm-hmm. they had kind of a mixed signal. Some of the other, like the Pacific North America pattern showed up, came, came and went, didn't really match the overall precipitation pattern. So they just saw it kind of as a mess of an active weather pattern without blocking. February, we can go back to that. It may be a little bit more El Nino 
coming on online with February. The MJO was still active in, in February too. And the MJO and El Nino, um, I think the MJO was more active December, January, and then kind of gave over to the dominant El Nino signal in February. But when you look at February and you look at sort of the, the state averages, yeah. yeah like They it, don't really match up, it, do they? <laughs> well, I, I mean, some of the states that are blinking on at, you know, much above average are those states that have an El Nino correlation, but yeah. a lot of them don't. Yeah, I know. The, the, the southern tier states in February... In fact, right, like Florida was wet. very, very dry. Yeah, and Texas was dry. And yeah. those are areas that tend to see more rain during El Nino. I mean, I, I, I read a few stories and the media narrative, I think, is making this unnuanced. Uh, and you're bringing a little bit more nuance to this. But it's like, oh, it was That's an El Nino. That's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, it's an El Nino year. And, and as if El Nino affects the entire yeah. you know, continent in the, in, in, in the same way at the same right. time. right. And I think that's a kind of a spurious, spurious comment. Well, I think it's just an oversimplification, right? And I, I think that that's the real challenge. We'll probably talk about this too, is that El Nino equals wet here in the Southwest. I wish it were that way. I mean, I, I think I, I certainly was of that thinking, that simplistic thinking going into some of our re- more recent El Nino events, but it's just so much more complicated than that. It's so then what do you signal. take when you, what, what do you take away from El Nino? We tend to want to simplify things in our minds and like we want to draw out what the, the, the big picture is or, or, or the, the important point. The simple wet El Nino dry La Nina story is very much in the media narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And it's unnuanced. Uh-huh. Where does that leave you when you're coming into an El Nino year? probably more skeptical of, you know, anticipating certain patterns than I have ever been. And I think, I think the lessons learned in the 2015-16, where we really, it was a bit of a house of cards, I think, on our, our expectations around that. I mean, and that was even under the real strong event, expectation of the anomalies to, to sort out the way that they, they had in the past. And they didn't. And so when we watched this event, remember we had a, a moderate La Nina last year. It wasn't wasn't a bang up super strong one, but it it did its job. I think that the attribution for the last winner, I think probably tag it on a La Nina event. Weak, moderate. Yeah, weak, moderate. Yeah. Right. But the the that pattern seemed to shake out as being the La Nina attribution there. But again, maybe I'm over attributing La Nina as the cause of of the mess that we got ourselves into last winter with it being so epically dry. But you know, we didn't have a lot else to go on. And then that waned last spring. And then we saw the development of an El Nino coming. And it, it is, it's never kind of fully matured until just the last minute. So it's been, it's been a background player at best. And even so I pulled up the February NCDC report, and they don't even want to give El Nino that much credit for the February pattern. The, the PNA and the Pacific North America pattern. Well, I guess that's... A couple of other teleconnection patterns seem to match a little bit I better. guess that's where I was going with your sort of month breakdown mm-hmm. and your sort of description that there's a lot of things going on. And when you look yeah. at it at the month and you, and you try to diagnose the, the right. synoptic patterns, like you're drawing from a, a bunch of different things. Yeah. And that's probably the case All always. the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. Well, I think that, you know, we've seen in the past where some of these big El Nino events in the right time of the year become such monolithic 
drivers of atmosp- atmospheric circulation that they're not, that's still not even 100% at that point. But you're getting up there where it's like it's it's now taking over a lot of the northern hemisphere circulation pattern in the wintertime. And I think we kind of expected that in 2015, 16. We didn't. We saw a huge footprint of it across the northern hemisphere, but it wasn't quite the quite the footprint, especially in Arizona, that we would have expected in the past, given like how 83. Well, it was such a big and, perturbation of the atmosphere. Yeah, it was huge. That, it's an enormous amount of energy you're dumping yeah. in a different spot, and yeah. you expect it. And so, I guess to your point about this year, it's a little a little blip. It's not that big of an anomaly. The atmosphere has responded. The Walker circulation has weakened. There's been some slight shift in the easterlies, not not a particularly good big one. And so if that's the case, then then every weather event we've had from October to now, we can't. can't, I, I, I just feel like we can't give it too much credit. Let's talk a little bit about the the impacts of 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 the winter. So we had a yeah. pretty a, pre, a pretty wet winter across the west maybe with the exception of uh, the far pacific northwest. Good for drought as you mentioned. Yeah, good for water, which you're going to talk about. Yeah, we can talk about snowpack good for good for good for water, potentially bad though in 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 other respects, right? A couple things come to mind. Why well, you got to bring it well, down? We we, we got to make this nuanced. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> because hey, the 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 pollen has been. Um, oh, okay, that's true. Uh, the allergy season yeah. has been, and I use my wife as as yeah. as a judge because I'm not. Um, you don't have the allergies. I don't have allergies, uh, oh, but it's been a pretty lucky, pretty lucky bad man. season so far, largely from the the October rains. Yeah, right? yeah, the timing of the rains were perfect for the desert. Uh, we had super bloom in the Mojave Desert in Anza Borrego and um, Southern Arizona. That's right. And it's now like full on yellow flower season. You know, all that, that fall rain ends the up germinating. Po- poppy poppies. apocalypse. Poppy apocalypse. Yes. I drove from here to San Diego and Papapalooza, Papacella. So yeah, I did that drive from here to San Diego in last, a couple weeks ago. And I couldn't couldn't believe the <laughs> well the, the funny stories that are coming out is they're they're all upset at the millennials for um, for getting out and taking selfies and trampling all the poppies. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> and it's all millennials too. Huh? Totally no, that's that's the narrative. They're laying down and like stomping on the poppies, and so there's been like a, lot, oh, a number so, of I'm, stories written oh, about it's it. It's finally good to be a Gen Xer. That's <laughs> no other reason. Yeah. So the pollen season's been particularly bad. It has been bad. I can I can I can vouch for that as well. So what about the wildfire season? Because uh, we're coming into that right now, and yeah, and, and obviously the wet winter, I guess in my mind, it can have opposite effects. So maybe in the in the low country in the in the desert, the the precipitation is will fuel a lot of sort of fine fuel and shrub growth. Yeah, which when you you slap on the the heat season, it doesn't take long for those fuels to dry out. Right. And then that sort of sets um, sets the stage for elevated fire risk and then and and maybe the, the the lower elevations. Absolutely. But then with the the higher snowpack in the high countries, you know, you have a longer, well, d- depending on how how rapid the warm up is, uh, but it hasn't been that rapid so far. Yeah. Um, you have longer lasting soil moisture and sort of su- suppresses the risk immediately or or this upcoming season for the high country. So it's sort of a mixed bag there. You should see this sort of divergence where you have low elevation fire danger and higher elevation reduction in fire danger. I think just what you just said, because those heavier fuels are going to be wetter 
at the higher elevations and it's going to be cooler and it's going to extend and we could maybe close the gap right to the monsoon season and limit that risk but the low elevations will cure out pretty regularly in may doesn't take long doesn't take long and then they're fine fuels so they will dry out quickly and typically it's windy in may and so you'd expect the fire danger to go you know kind of through the roof which is what NIFSI, the national Energy agency fire center seasonal Fire outlook does suggest that there's an enhanced wildfire risk across uh, southern Arizona in the low deserts and then southern New Mexico, I believe, too, with that fine fuel issue. Well, what about, though, um, a lag for the for the high country? Like, so the, the wet winter develops or, or, or fuels growth of, uh-huh. of, of understory and... and and it takes a little bit longer to dry out. And so maybe there, the, there isn't an immediate risk, but if we were to have a dry winter this winter... Yeah, perhaps it sets the stage for 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 future years. That's yeah, that's like Tom Swetnam and Hilary Bentoncourt's work, and some others. Tony Westerling is is found some of these. If I didn't read those, then did, is that my idea? You did. I mean, <laughs> go try to publish it. See see what happens. Yeah, that's been demonstrated, and it's been demonstrated in the research. I thought I had a good. <laughs> it's idea. a good idea, and it's because it's been been shown to be true. You can get these lagging, right? You can get offsets of years. You know, looking for that'll sync up with the La Nina El Nino. Um, fuel production, drought, fuel production, drought, and then seeing the fire activity. And it'll it'll be elevationally dependent. And I actually did a little of this with my dissertation work too. I actually wrote a paper on this as well. So I definitely I'm gonna cite that. myself. We can get a little bit more into the fire in the in the in the next podcast because we'll be yeah, I think sort it, of more in the throes. I think of- we should lean into it then. Yeah. I, I think I, you've been so giddy about the water situation though. I think you need to I think you need to take off on on that. Okay. Yeah let's look at the let's look at the snowpack, which Right, so the so we you know we've chronicled this the snowpack situation, which mirrors for the most part the the precipitation that we've already talked about. So it's not a surprise that with a very wet winter comes high levels of uh, of, of snowpack. But what's currently the case right now is that uh, most of the West, uh, with the exception of actually you know the Gila, with, with the exception of Arizona, and again the, the Pacific Northwest. All of the high country has a uh, above average snowfall. And one thing that I thought was was interesting, at least um, for Arizona, uh, where Flagstaff is the only, well, one of a few of the snowtail sites that still has above average snow. It's it's that the the melt season has been a little bit later. It 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 it, it it's uh, uh, substantial melt usually occurs a couple weeks starting a couple weeks ago and it, it just started right right now so. yeah and I, I think that we can have wet winters across the west that aren't quite as productive i think snow wide too i think i think it's highly correlated but we can end up having slightly warmer wet winters this one has just been the there's been a persistent cool anomaly that's helped this snowpack be so healthy this year. So I think that it's been, you know, it's not, since it's not super subtropical El Nino-y high snow level, it's been kind of this, this mix of cold storms dropping out, interacting with moisture um, has really helped the snowpack along this year. And, you know, it's, it's something you're probably not going to get every year, especially into a warming world. And the other implication of this uh, has been for uh, stream flow. There's some optimistic news for the Colorado, at least, most of the the reservoirs in the southwest here are are seeing a bump in uh, in reservoir levels. But the projection from the Bureau of Reclamation for spring stream flow for uh, of inflow into Lake Powell 
is something like 130% of average. So uh, a press release from the Bureau, or no, actually um, John Fleck, who writes a lot about, who's at the University of New Mexico, who writes a lot about water in, in, the, in the West, had a nice blog post where he discussed projections for Lake Mead elevation. And between February and March, the projected inflow into Lakes Mead and Powell were so high that um, basically Lake Powell is going to release, I think, 9 million acre feet this year into Lake Mead, which will basically, as opposed to what they normally release under less copious inflow is seven and a half million acre feet. Okay. So that additional 1.5 million acre feet will increase elevation in, in, in Lake Mead to be around 1080, 81, I think. No kidding. 1075 <laughs> is that threshold right. where it goes into shortage. Yeah. Agreement. Still flirting with disaster, but that's still, that's still good. Right. Yeah. But it, it kicked the, right. the can down the road one year and reduced chances of shortage declaration uh, in 2021 as well. So you know, it, to, to me, what's interesting is that it it really it's evidence of how precarious the situation is. Is that we can have a you know the second wettest February on record, and that's what it gets us for. For it didn't solve it by like bringing it up 25 feet. It right, brought but, it up a couple feet. But I think those maybe those numbers are like increased by six. Uh, feet of elevation. Maybe it sounds small, but I, that's a ton. Of no, work. I'm not diminishing. I'm just saying like, like this is a decades long recovery problem. Like we need to do this winter 10 more times right? to, to like get us so far from the edge of the shortage to not worry about it anymore. Well, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm not a water person, but the story on the Colorado is that there's what they call the structural deficit. Right. So um, that in an average year, the, the river itself fully allocated is over allocated by 1.2 million acre feet. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. and I don't know that there's so many, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story. So I don't know if all of the allocations are taken every single year, but if they are, I mean, you, you have to get 130% of average basically just to equal what's taken out of yeah, it. And so, right. and oh, so that's, that, good point. Good point. that's why you see the, the decline. Although, you know, there is, you know, news, uh, good news on the drought, contingency plan for the Bureau of Reclamation because they just signed they just signed in the legislation actually uh, an interim deal to deal with that structural deficit mm-hmm. we won't spend any we're not water people here so no I yeah um, but encourage people to look that up because um, yeah I, I think you know following, and it's contentious too because oh, actually it absolutely they, is they one of the major key players the uh, Imperial Irrigation District was not part of the agreement they're the people that manage the Salt and Sea. Mm-hmm. So there's real issues there with public health issues and the declining Salt and Sea and asthma and all this kind of stuff. It's it's a it's a worthy story worth worth uh, doing a little research on. The water needs to go everywhere to keep the impacts low. I mean that's kind of a truism in its own right. But there's so many moving parts and so many players and so so much at stake with this. Is that having this winter? I think bought us a little bit of time. It'll be interesting what we do with the time going forward. Yeah. I think for the most part, um, water managers will take it. Yeah, um, absolutely. I say bring on the pluvial. That's on my t-shirt. Says. 1980s. Br- That's right. Bring back the 1980s. 1980s. That's right. Mike, anything else you want to say about drought? Or, you know, we talked a little bit about the the impacts. Uh, we didn't spend too much time on drought other than uh, it, looks, it looks like a good state. Anything from the, from the drought monitoring? No, I think that the short-term 
improvements have been very good, very healthy improvements. You know, so we're looking at this, you know, month to seasons aspect. The reservoirs are our sort of long-term indicator of um, longer-term deficits. And so like, kind of like I said, I think to, to truly get us out of sort of long-term drought, we need to do this winter again a couple more times in a row, quite honestly. Yeah. And that doesn't come along very often in the paleo record. You don't see these kinds of winters stack up on each other. So we'll just have to kind of be vigilant, keep an eye on uh, conditions. The fact that El Nino is <laughs> a solid C student, kind of average, slightly underperforming, but might hang through the summer. Let's and, hold that thought. Okay. Because yeah. I want to get to El Nino, but I, let's yeah. first do our tallying of the bets. We had a, a, a winner winter yes. total precipitation bet. And then last month, we also doubled down and the, the bet was about whether or not Tucson would end up in the top 10. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. That's <laughs> uh, right. For the January, February, March season, I'm 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 claiming victory. Fine, it's fine. Yep. Yeah. Um, I won two out of the three months. My estimate was 2.9 inches for Tucson. Mike's was 2.8. We were both completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> I, we undersold it. It was uh, yeah. a total of 3.7. I like to be wrong in that direction. That's and, a good way. And we were both optimistic because yeah. climatology was. Yeah, we were pushing even as it was. Yeah. However. Last podcast, I went completely bullish and crazy and thought it was going to be a top 10. And I, we needed something like 1.8 inches, and we only got that one storm. So there's been a couple of rain events around the Tucson area that have missed the airport, but have only put down a couple hundredths of an inch across town. So. We needed two or three of those events. Yeah, you, I, I made that bet, though, without actually knowing what the what the, the numbers needed Which to you be. often do, and I, I enjoy that part of it. So I prepped for for the next bet. Oh, so, yeah, which you, I did not. You don't know okay. this one. So I propose that we estimate the total number of days in May and in June each month. Total. That are above 100 degrees Fahrenheit for Whoa. Tucson. What's the climatology? I don't want to give it to you because then I, I, I give my, I give my, uh, all right, I'll do <laughs> it. Your... All right, do it. I only looked over the last 18 years because I, didn't, I wanted to get rid of the whole climate change thing. Okay. Okay. So this isn't okay, a true climate. Good. This isn't a true climatology. This isn't. This is uh, just looking back from from 2018 to 2000. So the average number in Tucson is five. The max is 11 for those for two May. months. For for May. Okay. For May. Okay. For June, it's 22, with the max being 30. By the way, which is 2013. Wow. Okay. Brutal. I don't remember that. What What do you think? Okay. So what are we doing first? May. Yeah, we'll do May first. Okay. So the fact that El Nino is lingering and has actually screwed with the atmosphere a little bit right now, suggests that may end up slightly cooler than average. And you said five is the average number of 100 days? Yep. Five is the average for May and max is 11. I'm going to give you five for May. <laughs> going right with climatology. <laughs> I can't imagine with trend on top of it. It was six last year, five the year before. Zero in 2016, by the way. Ooh, see that was that was a lingering oh, but, El Nino. Oh, so get this though, 2013 had zero for May and then 30 for 30, June. Yeah, yeah. I I think this is how it works for sure. I, no, I'm changing. I'm changing. Two. You're going two. I'm going two. I'm going two. Two for May. See, we already had a 97er. Right? I know. <laughs> we already had a 97. So I, I know. I, I'm feeling. I don't feel good about this one. I, I'm torn on this because I, I'm actually going to go above. I'm going to go. I think it's going to be six. About the long term average. Okay. And at the end of the month. 
we're going to have a series of uh, of days. Uh, high pressure is going to be yeah. around and enforced. My gut tells me, and this is this is the trend issue. My gut tells me you're right, but I'm. It's working. The El Nino, I think, is is actually a factor. Could be right. 2015 was two. That was a that was a massive. Mo- that was pretty pretty. Gonzo. I'm going with six. I'm going with six. What I did I say? <laughs> you said two. Okay. All right. So June. Uh June. I'm going to say we're going to hit the gas and go 25. 23 last year, 25 the year before, 22, 23, 29, 30. I think it's going to be 20. I didn't work this out ahead of time, but that actually puts me right on climatology. 20, is actually, 26. Is, are we doing forecasting? Yeah, but it's it's, it's like... Yeah, it's not useful. <laughs> we are for, we're doing statistical forecasting, actually. Kind of, kind of, yeah. I just did a uh, an eyeball regression. Let's go. <laughs> Nothing works better. <laughs> I controlled for myself on that one. <laughs> uh, okay, so so we'll see how that goes. Now let's end this with some preludes to to the future. So you were you started, Mike, with talking a little bit about Enso is still in play, and there has been talk that that even though this it's a hard time to forecast that the models are suggesting that this El Nino will per- persist with higher chances that it, it'll ramp up. No indication on, on intensity yet, but it will ramp up in, in, into the winter. But, it, but sort of you, maybe not unprecedented, but uniquely that it will persist through the summer. Yeah. How do you feel yeah. about that? It's, I'm so incoherent on this whole Enso thing. It's like... Well, it's because it's, it's the only... It's really the I know, only, it's only thing game to grab, in town, grab right? a hold of. Yeah, I know. Otherwise, it's, you're, you're right. just a meteorologist. It's totally, exactly. It's a, well, a meteorologist <laughs> trying to forecast at non-meteorological timescales. Right. So that's exactly right. I keep, I keep going back to it because it is a persistent thing, persistent anomaly that's going to dump heat in the atmosphere in an unusual way, and it may continue to Is there an undiscovered the influential mold, mold, mode? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like some, but something of the ilk of, in terms of influence of El Nino. What do you mean? Go back to prior, prior to knowledge of the Southern Oscillation, El Nino and Southern Oscillation. I'm like, have we just not discovered something that's out there that is influential, substantially influential on our climate? No. Yeah, I don't think no, so. No, I don't either. think so either. There's been some interesting papers. I think we just mentioned this. There was a paper in nature maybe six months ago maybe maybe it was a year ago they actually saw some precursor like if you go down the new zealand index yeah. i think it was what it was and some bridge yeah there was some bridge that connected all the way back up to enso and actually had a better lag forecast and better connections right down to arizona than even enso did but i think as we noted in there the correlations were marginally improved over enso and so there was still so much unexplained variance. I think it's that. about just trying to find all, better understand the the processes for all of these different phenomena that Im- impact the weather in a given, I, and, and figuring out the strength of those. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, El Nino and 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 Enso will still be the a dominant force, and right. it actually may its its strength may wane as we go forward right. um both as a function of anthropogenic climate change but also as a function of just sort of other influences blink on more strongly at at different times and I mean, I, we we see this already that yeah well i think again i think just in sort of first principles though that the equatorial region is getting most of the sun's energy and it's the center of action of moving that energy out into other 
parts of the planet, right? So the energy imbalance emerges in the tropics and then propagates outward. So it will always be kind of one of the center, you know, anomalies in that area are going to have probably the higher perturbations of any, any place else. And there'll be secondary. I'm not sure that other places will emerge to, to override right. that, right? But I think their interactions will be pretty complicated. Well, and changes in the Arctic could could throw for a sure. Lot. But it'll be an interaction. It won't right. be an overriding right. of that um, particular thing. And uh, yeah, and I think you, there's some paleo work that has suggested that the gradients change, and you have changes in the mid latitudes. Continental and, drift. Continental drift. Pangea. Pangea, baby. That's right. So Pangea is a problem we should be concerned about. Reverse Pangea. I miss um, the Triassic. <laughs> what were we talking about? I, don't, I, don't I think you're actually talking about the summer and yeah. why the heck I'm even invoking the cursed El Nino for any guidance into the summer. I yeah, think how do you feel about I, the persistence of El Nino and what, what's its sure, it's what's fine. its impact going forward? So the I think the persistence is is it's why we use it is because it's a slowly evolving phenomenon right. that has persistence. And there is a uh, slug, a downwelling Kelvin wave moving across the equatorial Pacific. Right. So it's warm water that will emerge later and reinforce the anomalies at the surface. Right. And this is why it's expected to persist. Right. Because there's there's still warm water yeah. that's going to surface. You're just, it's right. You're, you, there's a train on the tracks and there's a crossing gate. Your forecast is, is that that train will go through the crossing gate and at so many, I think so should, much time. I think this is, it's important to say that our forecast of the state of ENSO is much better than our forecast for what the precipitation and what what precipitation would do. That's right. And, but still, even the evolution of ENSO isn't, all, <laughs> the forecast of it is fairly complicated. Even when we see the anomalies emerge, you know, like trying to forecast what the spatial pattern of the temperature, the sea surface temperatures with El Nino is a little bit, can get a little bit cloudy, it's pardon pun. But then, then the atmosphere actually has to respond to that reorganization, and often it doesn't um, because it's getting pinged with noise from other weather systems and that kind of stuff. So that's typically peaks and is strongest. That teleconnection is in the wintertime. The spring is where you're getting sort of seasonal reorganization. And in the winter, we typically don't have, the jet stream isn't as important in those things. But you still can have r- subtle, weak waves in the northern hemisphere in the summertime that can mess with the monsoon system. And so we've even, we can look at just some of the correlation maps and you see a pretty weak correlation with the 500 millibar pattern with the weak trough, weak ridge. The correlations are weak anyways, but the pattern would be similar to what we see during with the monsoon ridge, but maybe slightly weakened, suppressed monsoon in July that then advances north climatologically as it would in August. And this is some of like Chris Castro's work where you see some correlation with El Nino winters lingering into spring or even the evolution of an El Nino in the emergence of an El Nino in the summer. If it's in place in in July, it can cause the monsoon to come in late, but it's not every it's not every year. We went back and looked at the ENSO data and there's I think there's 14 since 1950, there's 14 summers, July, August, September summers, that had an El Nino conditions. Yeah. So Oceanic Nino Index above 0.5, above which 0.5. is the Climate Prediction Center. Of those 14, there were two or three that actually brought, that were coincident with 
above average monsoon. Yeah. Rain. And for the most yeah. part, they were below average or maybe were, nearish to below average. Right. And but, but, but I think what you were saying is a little bit more nuanced, which is yeah. that the, the correlation between ENSO and summer rainfall is only in July. And it's only mostly in Arizona. Right. right. So, so it's, yeah, it's July in Arizona. Okay. Number one, the correlation is not very good. It's fairly weak. What is correlated is typically suppressed precipitation in July, later onset of, later onset of precipitation in Arizona with an El Nino event, which would lead to overall lower precipitation in July, just because having a later start. But then it basically, that relationship breaks down in August and September. So most recently, 2015, didn't have that problem. Strong El Nino in place, 2015. It's worth just saying kind that of it wasn't. Along. It was, yeah, it, it wasn't. But man, I mean, I would take 2015 again. Yeah, 2015 came at just just above average, but it was always sort of hovering around average. No, it was, yeah, a, it it was, was a, a It was a good monsoon. It was, it was as, you know, like spaced out and good selection of events as you, you, you would want. The previous one to that, 2009, the monsoon hover was a disaster. Disa- so 2009 is one of our driest summers on record, and, which is and coincident warmest. with an El Nino. And warmest because it was the, <laughs> was one of the driest. And that, that was our big concern back then was that, okay, El Nino causes dry summers, but it's just not enough. Yeah. There's not enough signal there for that to be a hands down on the Arizona side. The other thing that's in play here is the East Pacific hurricane season we would expect to be above average. Mm-hmm. And having kind of a, a, a weak trough off the California coast could cause recurving to be early on, right? Early on. Like, yeah. Actually, we had that in, in June that's right. last year. In 20, yeah, and in 2015 too, 2015 with the it's, El Nino conditions sort of hanging in there. It's weird though, because that goes in yeah, opposite la- ways as right. the, the correlation we just talked about. Well, it is. But the last year with the weak La Nina, there, there's also this mode called the Pacific Meridional Mode, which is going to relate to the East Pacific sea surface temperatures that are going to drive some of that hurricane activity in the East Pacific. And so we've seen that kind of hang above average for the last couple of springs. So it's like, there's so many moving parts that we can't, we can't just lay this on the shoulders of El Nino and even use it as a forecasting tool going forward. So I'll give you climatology (laughs) for for the summer. All right. I think you got the last word on that. I mean, I'm excited because- uh, Me too. I'm ready for it. Yeah. The monsoon. I mean, such a good- just flew by. uh, Such a good summer, such a good winter. I think I'll be okay with spring because we're only going to have 200 degree days next month. Um, according to me. And then it'll be only 15 days to the monsoon starts. Boy, that'd be great. I know, it would be great. All right. Thanks, everybody, for spending another hour with us. And uh, we'll come back in in a month. In May, talk monsoon. Talk monsoon. Woohoo! All day, all the time. Do you recall what it was coming in? There was some. There was some. Huh? It, went right. from, it went from some <laughs> to none. <laughs> That's the level of quantification and sophistication we bring to this podcast <laughs> oh that's the what that is climatology <laughs> i was wondering who c yeah, was we're uh <laughs> well it could it could be for, was for crimmins. crimmins i thought did i make that guess